The Old Testament reading is from Psalm 139. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, O Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. The word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. Does it seem a little bit somber in here to you? I don't know. Maybe more than usual. Maybe it's just me, <clears throat> the events of the week, the rain, maybe because it's a little bit less bright in here. I don't know. Let's call it reflective. We're in a meditative mood. But if you're new here, I hope that you know that this is also a place of joy, that it's a, a time of celebration. It's a time to recognize and smile because we believe that God is real, and he's alive, and he's good. And so it's okay to be in a somber mood, but it's also good to smile and to rejoice. And let's try and capture that in prayer as we begin reflecting on this psalm. Father, if it's only me that we hear from this morning, these are mere words, mere information. Would you infuse these words mine and yours that we read in the psalm with hope, with healing, with power. Wherever we're coming from, wherever we're here, whether we're here reluctantly, whether we're here skeptically, whether we're hopeful or whether we're hurting, would you meet us with your grace? Would you meet us with the gospel? Would you meet us with David's insight into your character? Would you bless us? And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the best articles I read last year was written by a gentleman named Sam Anderson, writing in the New York Times Magazine. So it's a little bit longer article, but it's one of those articles that you get to, and it's really long, but then you want more. And it was about Michelangelo's David, which I've never seen in person, but he was discussing the micro-fractures in David's ankles that threatened to bring the whole statue down, all 17 feet of it. It turns out the most famous statue in the world, the one of the most apparently perfect sculptures in the history of the world is plagued with structural problems centered upon the ankles. Some of the problems are due to imperfections in the marble itself that they quarried from a certain place that didn't have as strong a marble as maybe a mile away. Some are due to the design of the structure itself. When it's sitting flat, it's actually tilted a certain number of degrees, and it sat outside of the museum that it's in now 
for over 300 years in the rain and sun and everything tilted slightly with a great amount of stress on the ankles. And some of the threat is due to the fact that the ground that you stand on is never perfectly still. It's always vibrating in some way because of geological activity, because of trains going by. You can hear them here sometimes as they roll by. Uh, And even the tourists that walk by, it shakes the base of the statue just enough that over hundreds of years, that pressure develops to a degree that it creates micro-fractures and cracks potentially enough to bring the statue down. Now, people have known this for since the 19th century, but it wasn't until 2014 that a very scientific study was done by a group of Italian geoscientists, and they published a paper with a wonderfully banal title, Modeling the Failure Mechanisms of Michelangelo's David Through Small-Scale Centrifuge Experiments. Wow. I bet that brought him in. Well, this terrible title concealed a terrifying truth. They measured the weakness in David's ankles by creating a small army of tiny Davids and then put them in a centrifuge at different angles to uh, sort of simulate different levels of real-world stress to see what danger are we actually in. What the researchers found was pretty grim, that if the statue ever tilted in the event of an earthquake, more than 15 degrees, that it was a goner. And also, just because of the buildup of gravity and time and even the pitter-patter of tourist feet, that they couldn't guarantee that David was going to stand for much longer. So book your trip to Florence if you want to see. That's the moral of the story. We read part of Psalm 139, attributed to the actual David, the poet king. And he writes this prayer, itself a beautiful work of art, one of the most famous psalms in the Bible. And this psalm has been turned into dozens of worship hymns, as far back as Johann Sebastian Bach to the current Christian radio. And everywhere in between, this song has been turned into songs of worship and praise. And as far as I can tell, the tone has always been exuberant praise, gladness about who God is. How wonderful it is, David said, that you, God, know everything about me. Every thought, every word before I speak it, you know all of my ways. How wonderful. But there's a lot of tension here in these verses that the English translation doesn't quite capture. It sounds like a simple praise song of God's omniscience, but it turns out that this omniscience is actually terrifying to David. This psalm begins, at least, as a lament. David is actually saying, God's searching knowledge is overwhelming to me. His knowing every thought is too much for me. And this interpretation, this reading, is confirmed by verse 7 when David says, where can I go from your presence? Where can I flee to get away from your spirit? That's the tone of this psalm. He's not saying that I am so delighted that wherever I go, you were there. 
I'm so comforted by the fact that you know every thought, word, and motive in my heart. No, he's saying, how can I get away? How can I escape this God's penetrating gaze? He sees everything, all of my faults and all of my imperfections and all of the tiny cracks in my character. Sam Anderson traces this history and the challenge of the cracks in David's ankles, but it's far more than just a technical summary of the problem. He does a masterful job of reading in personal anecdotes and reflections and sort of anthropological meditations into the story. And he talks of visiting this statue twice, once when he's 20 and once when he's approaching his 40s. And he says this, when I first saw the David in person, the only word that came to mind was perfect. Why hadn't anyone ever told me he was perfect? I was 20 years old, exhausted, unwashed, traveling for the first time ever, ignorant of almost everything worth knowing. Perfect, I know, is not a terribly original response to the statue, nor a very precise one. But in that moment, it filled my mind. It felt like a revolution, urgent, deep, vital, and true. Standing in front of the David was by far the most powerful experience I have ever had with a work of art. Two decades later, he returns, now pushing 40 with a little bit more life behind him. By the time I returned to Florence, I had grown accustomed to spending solid weeks in a state of high anxiety. My hands would turn freezing like a corpse, and I would sit at my desk wishing I could cry. And my wife would tell me with increasing urgency that she was afraid I was going to have a heart attack. Eventually, after many years of this, I was prescribed a daily pill intended to stabilize an imbalance in my brain chemistry. And this, is, this solution has worked more or less, yet I am still plagued by this eccentricity of the lows. I love that phrase. I'm still plagued by this eccentricity of the loads, an impossible tension between the fantasies in my head and the realities on the ground. Sam understands what David does. But the truth about ourselves is very complicated. And it's very multifaceted and it's very multi-layered. And there's a great differential oftentimes between the fantasy in our head and the truth on the ground. And it terrifies us that someone else might see that differential, that they might recognize it in our lives and even worse, point it out. And so we spend a great deal of time and energy and effort trying to maintain editorial control to control who knows what, who knows who sees what, how they see it, when they see it, in what sequence do they see it, and how these discoveries are made. And it's why when surveys are done of people by reputable magazines, the number one fear of the average person is speaking in front of a crowd. Number two was death. Death. Death comes in second to public speaking. 
Jerry Seinfeld says this, is, this means that to the average person, if you have to be at a funeral, you'd rather be in the casket than giving the eulogy. People would rather die than speak in public. That's why we pay teachers and preachers so well. But we feel naked in front of a crowd, right? We lose and we cede editorial control to some degree, and so it makes us sweat. It makes our heart beat. It makes our palms sweaty. It's why marriage is so hard. You get married and suddenly you can't get away from this person. They're always in the room. You can't ultimately control what they know about you. And so, for many of us, it's paralyzing. We shut down. We leave. We close off. We don't talk. We look for the masking tape to put in between the room like we did with our siblings when we were growing up. This is my side. That's your side. Stay over there. This is the feeling that the psalmist feels when he says that he feels hemmed in. This isn't the protective embrace of God. This isn't a big bear hug. The word for hemmed in is being under siege. It's like a city being under siege. You besiege me, O God. You encircle me. You will not leave me alone. Once you've lived long enough, you realize that life is a centrifuge and all of your little imperfections eventually come out. And God sees them all. And it terrifies us. It terrorizes David. We want people to only see the edited version, the airplane version, the clean version, the fantasy version version of ourselves. But the problem is, beyond the impossibility of that wish, at the very same time, we have an equally strong but contradictory wish. And that is... For people to know the true us, to be seen, to be discovered, for people to know us as we truly are and not reject us. We want people to see us, not our fabrication, not our projection, but who we actually are and keep on loving us. To be known and Rejected, to be known and not loved is utterly horrifying. To be loved but not known is comforting to some degree, but it's superficial, and we know that. But to be fully known and fully loved, that's our life's quest. That's our hope. That's our desire for every relationship we have, especially the relationship that we have or could perceive as possible with God himself. And that's the quest of prayer. You remember how the story goes that our spiritual ancestors inhabited a garden of not only earthly delights, but of uninhibited access to God himself. They were seen and they were loved and embraced. But as the story goes, they thirsted for more. They wanted to know what was behind the curtain. They wanted to know good and evil, to be like God himself. But when they got what they wanted, it destroyed them. This knowledge overwhelmed them. It besieged them. It hemmed them in. 
So suddenly they wanted to escape this uninhibited relationship. They wanted to go into the other room, away from God's penetrating gaze. So they ran and they hid, knowing their nakedness. And as the story goes, they were given fig leaves to cover their nakedness, an accommodation to what is now a rational fear. They experienced the fear that all of us know all too well whether we're Christians or not. If people really know me, they will reject me. So I got to hide. And as human beings, we all feel this sense of cosmic claustrophobia. We're always being looked upon. We're always being judged. We're hemmed in. The Bible tells the story of how we got this way, why things went wrong, why we're the kind of people that we are today, and how those fig leaves are ultimately imaginary, and they don't really help, but they get more and more harmful over time. Religion is a fig leaf, tribalism, racism, and that's why the people in Charlotte really should be pitied more than hated, Charlottesville, because their racism, their tribalism, their hatred is a form of self-defense. It's a fig leaf. It's a thing that they hide behind, those flags, those words, their rhetoric. It's a defense mechanism. But these fig leaves that maybe we don't relate to quite so well, that are so harmful, They also are very subtle and sophisticated. Accomplishment. Children, marriage, money, education, all of these can be fig leaves by which we hide the little child inside that doesn't want to be seen. If we're good readers of the Bible, we will see that it's not just a collection of commands, of arbitrary to-dos of strange customs, but it's telling our story. It's telling us how we got here. It's telling and explaining this cosmic claustrophobia that we all feel from time to time, this fear of being seen and this fear of being known. But it doesn't just tell the beginning, you see, it tells the end. It tells the solution. This is so important. I hope that we can get this because David moves in this one psalm from debilitating fear to joyous salvation. In the second part that we didn't read, or in the second part that we did read, he contemplates meeting God in these distant lands, the far lands. And what does he come to realize? If I go up to the heavens, if I go to the depths, that is the word sheol, If I settle on the far side of the sea, that is, anywhere I go, even there, even there what? Even there I will find God's judgmental gaze. Even there, God will carry his list of grievances to meet with me and berate me. No, even there, your right hand will hold me fast. God, you see, doesn't use his omniscience, his infinite power against David to harm him, to exploit him. 
which is what we do with harmful knowledge oftentimes of other people. We exploit it. We use it against them. And so, therefore, we transfer that to other people. This is how they will use it. And we transfer it to God. This is how he will use it. If he knows everything, then I'm, I'm at risk. But in David's, David's depths, in his worst moments, when his sin is in full bloom, that's when God holds on to him. And this utterly transforms the prayer. Because you see, at first, David is recoiling. He's threatened by God's omniscience. It's too much for him. But now this omniscience, this very same knowledge, is radically comforting to him. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Precious is a word that's completely lost its meaning in our day. Precious to David is ultimate worth. It's gold, silver, rubies, diamonds. That's how he contemplates God's thoughts. For him, they are of ultimate worth. And he ponders this as he moves toward the end of the psalm, which we didn't read. David is able to say, you remember how he said, I wish I could escape. I wish I could get away. And now what does he say? Search me. Know me. Test me. See everything about me. He's not afraid anymore. He doesn't fear God's penetrating gaze because he learns to trust, not in his own goodness, not in his fantasy image, not in his editorial control, but he learns to trust in God's goodness and the fact that what holds him up, what makes him human, what makes him acceptable and real, is God's uplifting control. It's God holding on to him. You see all of me, David says, and you don't reject me. This is what we want, right? This is what I want. This is what we're all questing for. Sam Anderson says in the article, perfection, it turns out, is no way to live. It's a child's idea, a cartoon. This desire not to be merely good, not to do merely well, but to be faultless, to transcend everything, including the limits of yourself, it is less heroic than neurotic. And it doesn't take much analysis to get to its ugly side, a lust for control, pseudo-fascist purity, and self-destruction. Perfection makes you flinch at yourself, flinch at the world, flinch at any contact between the two. Soon what you want above all is escape, to be gone, annihilated. But what if we know, what if in our prayer life we come to believe, that we, become, we come to inhabit the thought that someone sees our imperfections and loves us anyway? What does that do in a normal human relationship? It makes us move forward rather than away. And that's God's invitation to all of us today, to meet the God of unlimited knowledge who is also unconditionally gracious and good. There's no more need for us to hide. 
because all is already known. All is accepted. If you are in Christ, you have been searched. Nothing will ever come out about you that will change God's mind about you. Everything about you has been excavated and is laid on Christ's shoulders to bear for you. He upholds it. He upholds you. He upholds your character. Everything that can be found has already been found. And it is paid for in the sacrifice of the only perfect one, Jesus Christ. And in His death and in His resurrection, we see God giving a guarantee, making a covenant promise that this will always be true. That He and His grace will always hold you fast. And that's why Jesus can say, Lo, I am with you relationally until the end of the age. Even until the end of the age. Let's pray. Father, we want to know how to have this same transparent prayer life and therefore transparent living that David had. We want to know how to not be afraid of the scans of your eyes and of anyone else's, even the judgmental scans that we do of our, on ourselves. We want to be unstuck. We thank you for this psalm that tells us that if we embrace your reality and the knowledge of what Jesus has done, that we will have you with us in a new way and that we don't have to live fearful lives again. Lord, we pray that you would help us by the Holy Spirit apply this into our lives individually and as a corporate body. We ask it in Jesus' name.